Hello and welcome to Glossonomia, conversations about the sounds of speech. I'm Phil Thompson and this is Eric Armstrong. Hi there, Phil. How are you today? I'm doing great. I'm ready to have a conversation about a sound of speech that we've been talking about now for three episodes running. Yes. Uh, or a, a trifecta, as we've been describing it, of three related sound categories. I was thinking about this uh, earlier today, that we're doing a switch back and forth always in these episodes between speaking about sounds phonetically and speaking about them in terms of their categorization or how they behave in the wild. And these, it seems to produce a sort of cognitive dissonance in our students and sometimes in ourselves, I'm sure. But it's a very helpful thing to go back and forth between saying, this is what your mouth is doing to make a particular sound, and this is how we understand those sounds as being related to words. And that's certainly what we've been doing. Uh, I'll explain what we have done in episodes 15 and 16. Uh, this is now episode 17. We've been talking about trap, bath, and palm. Uh, or let me pronounce them the way I really pronounced them when I was growing up. Trap, bath, and palm. Ah. Uh, so yeah, A lot of people don't like palm as a, a lexical <laughs> set word. Yes. said L, I'm shaking my fist here. Exactly. Well, well let's save that for a little bit and, uh, because I think that in the lay of the land we have three things to accomplish in this episode. Which So good luck keeping it down to half an hour, which is what we've been trying to do. Uh, the first thing is we want to make a little bit of a correction. I think I was confusing, confused in uh, one of the last two episodes. And I've since listened to it and realized what a hash I made of it. And... Uh, then we want to go on to talk about how within the trap set there's still some variation so that there can be a split, a further uh, refinement, if you will, of these categories. And then finally, we want to finally get around to introducing palm as its own lexical set. So, first of all, my error. Uh, we were talking through the bath set as described by J.C. Wells in his book Accents of English. And uh, he has subcategories. He just very conveniently lays out a list of words. Uh, this is item 59 in his system. And so he breaks it down into 59A, 59B, 59C, and then 59 prime which if I ever write a science fiction story, I think I'm going to call it 59 prime. So the first category of bath words are the bath words that RP speakers do as bath and that American speakers, let's say, do as bath. They are fairly stable ah uh, words. The second category, 59B, is words that an RP speaker would continue to say as ah, uh, like dance, advance, and chance, but that some speakers, let's say Australian speakers is a very good example, would do as dance. So I might say dance with a giraffe because 
In Australian English, bath B words are a, bath A words are a. Right. Now there's a third category within this, which is 59C, which is the superstable form, and that is uh, calf, half, and that category covers accents like Northern English accents, where you might say staff, uh, dance and do a sort of intermediate A for both of those sets of bath words, but that you still hold on to the ah sounding calf. So I'm not going to dance with a giraffe, I'm going to dance with a calf. Now, that may be a subtle difference, but it's, it's really hearable to somebody who's in that milieu. So uh, an RP speaker would be hearing giraffe and dance as very much not ah, but they would hear calf and half as very much ah. So a way of thinking about it is that an RP speaker would say 59C is the group that northern speakers get right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Whereas American speakers don't do any of those. We merge them all into trap. Yes. So uh, the most commonly used words in 59C are things like shan't and can't. Yes. Um, And Th- those are words that uh, are are rock solid yes. when a, a, a North American is looking to take their own ah sound and switch it over to an ah. Those words, yeah. you know, if you're going to the UK, you've got a pretty strong chance if you learn those as ah that you you you'll you won't make someone hate you. <laughs> yes. um, but the the A's and B's, there's uh, a bit more variability there. Yeah, that's terrific. Uh, the, the, there are some that are in the C category that uh, are said, actually, these days more commonly, but they're foreign words. Mm. Uh, Iraq, corral, that is the thing you put your horses in, uh, not the thing that you sing with your companions. Uh, morale, that is troop morale. Iran, Sudan, and banana. Now, banana is pretty mm. common, uh, but these days Iraq and Iran are common as well. Uh, I wonder whether Pakistan would end up in there. Well, exactly, and that's a really interesting, or Afghanistan, or Afghanistan. Uh, our president uh, tends to say Pakistan. No, does he say Pakistan? Or I'm, I'm hearing Pakistan more. It, it's, I don't know what our, your president says. Well, it was a bit of a... Uh, there was an article about it, and, I, and now I can't recall uh, what was being pointed to. The fact of the matter is uh, foreign words are a little bit more variable as they're more heard. Uh, mm-hmm. But certainly Americans tend to hit closer, especially with trap bath, we tend to not anglicize the ah word. So we'll say Gandhi and uh, Iraq and we might say the Shah of Iran. Uh, uh, but interestingly, we don't tend to do that with Iran, although there is a sort of, I don't know, uh, a liberal isogloss. There's a, a certain sense, I think, that uh, some folks who are more jingoistic uh, uh, don't want American speech to reach over into uh, 
obeisances to foreign leaders. So uh, we're not going to say Ahmadinejad. We're going to say Ahmadinejad or Ahmadinejad. So the more we miss... Iraq. Exactly. So we'll mispronounce them more vigorously as a way of keeping them at bay. Interestingly enough, in in the UK, uh, frequently Barack Obama is pronounced Barack. Yeah. Right? John Wells was bringing that up Mm -hmm. uh, a couple of days ago as he was being interviewed on that Today, the UK's Today show. So it's too much to ascribe motives to this, but it really does strike me as way of an egregious mispronunciation or... uh, almost a self-conscious mispronunciation that surely if you've heard it once, you know it's Barack. So why would you pronounce it? I mean, that's the guy's name. Barack. Yes. Why would you insist on not pronouncing it the way everybody in the United States (laughs) pronounces it? Uh, I, you know, I wouldn't say Gordon Brune. Uh, (laughs) uh, You know, it's an odd thing to me. And I think this is why I think that there's a psychological component. And it's very easy to do armchair psychology on this sort of thing. Or sociolinguistics, at least. Exactly. We'd be kicked out of a sociolinguistics meeting for this kind of talk, (laughs) let me tell you. So uh, one that's actually been in the news fairly recently is that there was a law introduced in the state of Nevada. Mm. And let me see if I get this right. uh, Insisting on the pronunciation Nevada... Uh, so as not to pronounce it in the Spanish way, Nevada, right. to insist on its Americanness. Right. I think I might have gotten that wrong, but to be that insistent, it's like when uh, uh, English was uh, adopted as the official language of California. That was a similar sort of move of fear to say right. we must maintain the Englishness, the Americanness. And the non-Spanishness, right? Uh, As the demographics shift to a larger and larger population yeah. of Latinos in California, the defensiveness rises. And I wonder if I mean certainly uh, Colorado, Colorado. I certainly mm-hmm. hear both. I don't hear anybody say Montana. No, but I hear people from Colorado say Colorado. And not Colorado. Uh, I, I, was cor- I was corrected for saying Colorado. Um, you Canadians. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, but, uh, wh- but, you know, what do we know? There's a very interesting uh, rabbit hole we're going down here on uh, American place name pronunciations. And people get a lot of uh, pride in their own particular pronunciation. My mother grew up in... Pierre, South Dakota, which is spelled the way you would spell Pierre. Right. Uh, and it's pronounced Pierre. Right. Cairo, uh, right, instead of uh, I think that's right. Uh, Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, right. It, it's a, a, one of these self-conscious things that if somebody says uh, Des Moines or Des Moines, or if they say Los, An- Los Angeles, uh, there, the local population has a way that they uh, say it, and it's my point of view that we ought to approach that as nearly as we can without appearing to put on an accent. Certainly, if the the speakers of that place name are speakers of English 
and the place name and if they're not speakers of English and the place name contains sounds that are in English mm-hmm. you know it's when you get a place name where the sounds are not English sounds so you know Ahmadinejad at some point you say well you have to make our, a compromise our mouths are not familiar with that yeah. sound let's make an adjustment yeah. but within reason I feel there was but, you know I, I just want to talk yeah. about that for for just a brief moment that idea about we're we're not sociolinguists and we'd be kicked out. <laughs> but, you know, the fact of the matter is that we are actors and coaches for actors yeah. and that actors are really interested in why people do what they do. They don't necessarily want scientific proof of why people yeah. do what they do. They like to imagine why people do what they yeah. do. And, in fact, they prefer to imagine than to actually be told statistically this is why they do it. Well, and... and uh, we're thinking like actors is what we're doing. Yeah, and and in fact, if that's what it takes to uh, solidify someone's memory of the choice that we have in mind, then that that mm. makes sense to me. Uh, th- there's one. Somehow we've gotten on to uh, the topic of pronouncing foreign words here, but in this particular set of categories, it kind of makes sense because uh, many languages don't have an ah. Uh, but they have an inter- intermediate ah. And we talked sure. about that in a previous episode. But one that occurs to me was on J.C. Wells' blog. They were talking about blamange, uh, this pudding, this sort of white uh, soft pudding. Uh, and it came to my mind that, in fact, flan is something that I like to order here in Southern California, and I pronounce it flan. Uh, but Certainly in England, they pronounce it flan. Uh, actually, English flan apparently has a crust, and it's a different sort of thing than Spanish flan. Mm-hmm. But Yes, I'm not sure what a flan is, but flan is like a, it's like a pie almost. With exactly. So flan... Custard, fruit. Is a custard, a sort of a, a more of a formed custard, uh, and it might have mm-hmm. some sort of crusty stuff at the bottom. Uh, so, do we choose the Spanish flan, or do we say flan, or do we say flan? Now, because there's a more English version of this dessert that's been in England and made in England, then by all means, let's pronounce it flan. Uh, but certainly American English speakers in Southern California restaurants, I think if you set up shop at uh, Taco Rosa, which is a great restaurant, uh, with probably the best flan I've ever had. Uh, you would hear every person, you'd ha- probably have a 50-50 split of people ordering flan or ordering flan. That's my guess, at least. Uh, so these things are in free variation. Hey, that gets me back to category 59 prime, which I don't think I finished. Right, 59 prime. <laughs> which is the, the subset of bath that is in free variation. Uh, it's a great phrase, free variation. It basically means we don't have any reason, we don't have any rules that can predict how we should say it. Even a single speaker might go back and forth between one pronunciation and another. And so the ones on this list are chaff, graf, alas. I'll tell you what, let me do them freely. Chaff, graf, alas, hasp, basque, mask. Plastic. I'm, I'd be surprised to hear somebody say plastic. Uh, drastic, elastic, gymnastic, 
pasty, pasty. Uh, so there are a number of them, many of which I have to say that when I've encountered them in coaching, things like bastard or masculine, yeah. I have an opinion about how they ought to mm-hmm. be said. But what this list tells me is that uh, either one might work. Uh, and it's possible that they're in less free variation than when that book was written indeed, over 20 years indeed. ago. 30 years ago now, I believe. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. It's 2010 now. Yeah. So yeah. I, I think it's a useful thing to know that there is variation. Uh, I think it's really useful to know that it's there's a limited category which is variable like that and not take the variation you hear as an invitation to start saying staff and giraffe or class. However, the that variation, as you mentioned, could be continuing. So we shouldn't be alarmed when we hear a speaker of what we take to be RP, let's say, pronounces something in a way that we didn't expect. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that our dictionary didn't warn us about. Nor should uh, an RP speaker feel that they have the authority to say, I don't say it that way, and therefore it's entirely wrong. Uh, I like to have several dictionaries around so that I can have some sort of authoritative proof of the choice that I already decided to make. Uh, I'd like to say that this is a... uh, a careful, a hard-won laxity that I'm encouraging, or uh, laxity with me as the final arbiter of authority. So Mm. uh, you can take that as you will. Uh, Beautiful. I think we've covered, we've erased my mistake from the past and maybe clarified things. So I think it's time to move on to how trap varies. Yes. Now, I think we said in a previous episode, prob- probably in the first, that the journey toward uh, the Ba'ath pronunciation was one that was led by a lengthening and led to a change in quality. And I've said these words before. What was a change in quantity became a change in quality on some words. So, trap man, back, have been ah for a long time in English. Uh, But rather lengthened. And gather, for some reason, and we mentioned this in a previous episode, didn't lengthen, or it lengthened and it didn't change its quality, only its quantity. So what we're left with, though, is an ongoing... uh, uh, a, a rule is the word I'm trying not to say. It's it's an influence, a drift in language. So that uh, in the United States, we are making a new split, I guess you could say, or have made a new split. Uh, some of these books that I have been looking at have been from the 19th century, the late 19th century, and describe uh, this split. In fact, let me read something from this uh, book Irish's Orthography and Orthoepy with Practical Exercises. Uh, they use here uh, the term Italian A to describe A and short Italian 
A to describe A, that intermediate A that we've been using that term. Uh, and so the footnote here says, instead of this elegant short Italian A in words like ask, uh, some uncultured speakers use a drawling of the short A in such words as dance, pass, class, etc., uh, which we can only assume, and you brought this up, uh, is an air, is a drawl, a shift. Yeah. So we get dance, pass, and class. Uh, Mr. Irish says, this is a coarse and very disagreeable error and should be studiously avoided. Uh, I love language like that. So, and, Well, and, and when we think of Lena Lamont saying, I can't stand him, yeah. that that's, was held up as a classic example a classic example of uh, uh, very low-status speech. And that uh, film, by the way, gives us a, an insight. It's sort of a recording of the last gasp, the last gasp of uh, elocution as a very powerful influence in education in this country. And I'm not quite sure what the history of elocution is in, in Canada, but I would imagine that there's a strong... Anglophilic bent to it, and there certainly Absolutely. was. I take this to be an Anglophilic bent. That, that is, we must deal with path words, and so we'll choose to say path, uh, and we'll avoid studiously avoid saying path. Now, we, we've demonstrated this shift here, but we haven't named it yet. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, the, we have a few ways of talking about it. So let's first deal not with that turning it into a diphthong thing, but just that brightening of it, that raising of it, uh, which has the delightful term ash tensing uh, or ash raising, I suppose you could say. Uh, yes. But I tense my ash when I try to raise it. So. Uh, <laughs> So just to clarify those terms, tensing generally re- refers to a, a, a closure that happens. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, when we talk about happy tensing, uh, we're talking about tensing or closing off that E at the end of the word happy. Yeah. So it's more E-like and less I-like. Uh, so ash tensing would also similarly close the mouth. Um, so uh, raising that the where that... Uh, vowel quality of a goes closer to the realm of e, I suppose. Yeah, so if I uh, am talking about a magazine, uh, oh, it's a great magazine. Uh, it's a magazine entirely devoted to math. Uh, a math magazine? I may be doing a little bit of that drawling or breaking that we're going to talk about in a minute, but I'm definitely raising, tightening mag, ma, ma, ma. I'm also probably nasalizing as as well as closing the oral cavity a little bit. Yeah, whether it gets all the way to nasality, but they're they're typically associated with that tensing is a brightening of uh, facial resonators or... Uh, uh, so we get a twangier quality on it. Yeah, we could separate Uh, those ideas out. We could say... Uh, Absolutely. I, without adding nasality, I'm going to say bag, 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 
big. And that nasalizing might in, make us hear more uh, brightness, but we can have more brightness without nasalization. That's a difficult thing to separate. Sure. And for a lot of people that where this happens, it happens for them exclusively when the ah sound precedes a nasal consonant. So you're more likely to hear people in North America say man than you would hear them say bag. Yeah. Uh, there are, of course, people who say bag, but uh, uh, I would say generally there are more people who say man, Canada, uh, mm-hmm. uh, in all over North America than uh, that, that say uh, the broad range of consonants that follow yeah. that ah sound. So... Actually, let's talk about this, the way it happens in in New York City and Philadelphia, because we have this lovely thing from the Atlas of North American English, I think, is where this diagram mm-hmm. came from. Yeah. Uh, essentially, uh, it's a box within a box. So uh, uh, what that indicates is that the New York City uh, raising or tensing is happening in more situations in New York, and there's a smaller, little, tiny subset on the map where Philadelphia speakers do the same thing. Does that accurately describe what you're seeing there? Yeah. So yeah. there are some sounds, and these are the, the consonant sounds following the vowel, where we maintain an open-ish a, ah, and those are p, t, ch, and k. So hap, hat, hatch, and hack are all ah. For both Philadelphia speakers and New York speakers, uh, if the following sound is a b, a j, a g, a sh, a j, a the, a z, or a v, then you get a e, a tighter, brighter, and maybe a slightly shifting e sound. So that would be nab, badge, bag, bash, uh, az, azure. I don't know exactly what's going on there. Uh, maybe, yeah, maybe their symbol is intended to imply the j. Uh, but no, they use the j for that. Nope. Nope. Uh, uh, azure. Yeah. Uh, rather, yes. uh, uh, jazz and have. And then there's a tiny one that's in there, which is the d sound. So in most cases, you'd still say uh, lad and sad, fad and jad. But on three words, mad, bad, and glad, which are quite common words, you would tense them or raise them. Now, High-frequency words. You're also going to do that in New York City uh, in further context. That is to say, before a nasal, so jam and man. Also before an F, like laugh. Before an S, like pass. And when it's at the very end, I guess is what they're trying to say here, although that violates English phonotactics. So I don't actually know what this ash is doing in the middle of the chart. Yeah, I think that might be a typo. So the in Philadelphia, however, the only places where you have this raising is on jam, man, laugh, and pass. 
Now, yeah. that is something that uh, I might understand on a chart. Uh, but if I were doing a Philadelphia character, I would basically want to go through my script and make absolutely certain that I was doing that right. I would also want to listen to a lot of speakers and see how freely variable it is, rather than simply mm. taking that research on its face. The one symbol that I think you missed Ooh. out that's on the chart is the eng. Oh, yeah. The sound of the word of bang. And it's outside ah. of the box that includes New York and Philadelphia. So uh, whereas you get man and jam, you don't get bang, you get bang. Yeah. Uh, so uh, of the nasals, that velar nasal, the one on your soft palate, mm -hmm. the so-called NG sound, does not take this ash tensing that we're talking about. So I know that sounds very confusing. I can imagine our listeners saying that's an unknowable thing. However, I think that the longer you listen to uh, these speakers, if you listen to recordings of New York City speakers, for example, you start to develop an intuition about what things you can get away with ang. Uh, now, uh, you know what? I, I would say that it's not that unknowable because for New York, there's five exceptions mm -hmm. that are memorizable. And for Philadelphia, there are four required ones. Yeah. So uh, uh, that's, that's doable. You, that's doable. You're right. I'm convincing myself. I think that's right. And I think that that's – it's certainly something that I uh, ask of my students uh, – yeah. When, when we go through this. Uh, I do, however, think that there's, a, there's an intuition that people can get. Uh, mm. All right. I, I, I have to describe an accent uh, error that I heard in a production, and so I'm going to be as careful as I can about not giving away the details of what that production was. Uh, it was a play set in the South, and... There, there are some sounds in the South that follow a similar sort of pattern of uh, split in a category. And uh, the two categories are kit and lot and cloth. The actors in the show applied ear to every kit sound. So it mm. was him, but also Leotel and kit. Uh, and then for lot and cloth, they were both all. So it was a lot of the time, Tom has cloth. And so overall, the way the sound sat in their mouths, the, the work they had done on what I would call the oral posture was really nice. And they sounded pretty good, but they had misconstrued the lay of the land. And mm. uh, they, they did have a coach, and so that coach, too, had somehow misconstrued and overapplied. And I think that that's a cautionary tale, that we might hear something. We might say, oh, look, he's saying man, so he's obviously going to say bag as well. And if we do that, we might convince 90% of, of our audience but the person who's from that place is going to go, that, that, that doesn't make any sense. Why would a person say that? You're crazy. Epic fail. Epic fail, exactly. And 
I think you're right that it is knowable and it is avoidable. And yeah. oftentimes the way I will approach an unfamiliar accent is to listen to it and to try to find those places where sounds appear to be following rules that are different than mine. And yeah. it's it's an important thing to have that cautionary tale, the epic fail, in your consciousness to ask yourself, is this really the rule that I think it is? Uh, mm-hmm. And then when you hear, uh, you want to avoid confirmation bias. So when I listen to a sample and I've decided that it's all eh, I want to be really careful that I'm ready to hear somebody say, uh, and then they put it in a bag and not think that that person's wrong or that they don't really have the accent or to ignore it. I have to be really, really careful to check myself and to check my assumptions just really all the time. I have to say that it it can be uh, really challenging when I'm working. I I do a fair bit of teaching people to be accent Mm -hmm. and dialect coaches now. And uh, there is a process, a stage in the process where they're getting the hang of the idea of sound change and noticing the variability of things, Uh, but their awareness of lexical sets is still pretty limited, Mm -hmm. and so their expectations about the way people speak is still very much grounded in the way Mm -hmm. they speak. And so they hear something and they go, aha, the thing that I do is clearly changed like this. Therefore, these other things that I do. And the most egregious form of this we've already talked about, and that is uh, when you learn that an RP speaker says bath instead of bath, you then want to apply it everywhere. Uh, You very quickly learn that that's a recipe for disaster, though. That a student working on RP, let's say, immediately discovers that Bath words are different, and they uh, may overapply and say, "Oh, it is a trap," and uh, <laughs> uh, look at my cot. But very quickly, they'll be confronted with the evidence that that's way off. Uh, I think that that process doesn't always work, and that somebody who says "kiat" or "leatol." Uh, may be convinced that they're actually doing it correctly, and they may be preventing themselves from hearing really what the accent is actually doing. Uh, and so it is a matter of checking, and and good. Uh, we don't need... Yeah, I think that that we have to say that, uh, to, to reinforce the idea that once you've kind of made your assumptions about what, what an accent is and learned it, to return yeah. to primary sources, to yeah, to sort of fact check, to be able to go, uh, is what I'm assuming about this right? So that when you're hearing things, you're going, aha, uh-huh, that's what yeah. I expected it to be. That's what I expected it to be, as opposed <laughs> to, I'm just tuning out and and listening to the, I don't know the, the, my sense of the well, I- oral posture of it that I'm actually I must say checking that myself. I, if I look at materials that I produced a decade ago, I, I can see that I've had an intuition that there's something going on. And I'll, I'll have written 
that it's variable, that a particular sound change is variable based on stress, let's say. But what I right. then, when I come back to the accent, I start to really hear that, oh, it's because of this. It's because of the phonetic context or it's, it's actually in a different category. And that's terrific. That we, it's difficult knowledge and we should be getting smarter at it. But we'll only get smarter if we actually admit the possibility that we were wrong before. Excellent. So I think we ought to move on to some of the other ways in which trap splits. We've talked about this uh, raising uh, either in this New York City system or the Philadelphia system. There's some accents in the Northeast that have what's called a nasal system. So it's just after nasals or just before nasals that ah sounds get tensed. Uh, there is an interesting thing uh, in Chicago and the Great Lakes region in Minnesota. Trap sounds get so raised that they move into uh, the face set. And so there's an interesting thing that happens. Uh, bagels are not necessarily the food of choice or weren't uh, when I was a kid. Uh, in the Midwest. But there were a lot of people who said that a big, that you put something in, uh, B-A-G, is pronounced big. So if you go to the bagel store and say, put my bagels in a big, I'm overdoing that right now. Uh, The two words seem to be the same. They they seem to be very, very similar. And so there are a lot of people in the inland north area there who actually say bagel because they're trying to correct their way away from it. So they've corrected bag, but they've also corrected bagel as though it were in the same set. Really? Is that why you think that is? I I think that it, bagel is one of those unfamiliar words that mm. came written and that a bunch of people saw bag, E-L, and decided that that was bagel. And they didn't, they didn't know how it was pronounced, and so they just guessed when they saw it written on a package, and they just started calling it a bagel. I, um, certainly, it's a huge, huge sense of free variation where I yeah. live in Canada that many people will say bagel um, in south-central Ontario. And it's, Are those folks who also would say a plastic bag? No. So No. They say bagel, and the... the um, it really seems to be, from my point of view, kind of an uh, an unfamiliarity with the idea of bagels and um, a total disconnection with the kind of community that created bagels. Mm-hmm. So would have never heard the word bagel pronounced uh, by you know someone who who for whom it's culturally appropriate to say bagel. Certainly, that mechanism would be in place in in the Upper Midwest as well. That. Uh, People can have what's called spelling pronunciations of words. Uh, It is certainly true that there's a merger for, let's say, a Minnesota speaker between bag and bagel. Uh, Right. So both things could be at work, but certainly in the area that you're talking about, that's not at work because people aren't saying bag. Yeah. 
I remember um, a, a kid when I grew up, I, d- I don't really know where she was from, but she oddly enough pronounced rags as regs. Oh, interesting. Um, and uh, that really struck me that she was from somewhere else that hmm. she pronounced rags as regs. Um, and that uh, uh, occasionally I will encounter a person who, who that uh, those velar consonants uh, moves, it, it tenses their ah sound, um, and so it, it rises up. Um, but, you know, sometimes when we're talking about uh, things like the northern city's shift, mm-hmm. um, that, that um, the place where they're sort of saying that ah sound lives is um, sort of an average of mm-hmm. the, the diphthongal quality uh, of the yeah sound. You're yeah. Sort of putting a single dot um, on, a, on a vowel chart as a way to represent sort of the, the mean. It is very uh, interesting uh, to look at one of these vowel charts uh, in the Atlas of North American English, for example, where a single speaker's realizations of a whole set of words within, let's say, the trap set are spread in a shotgun blast all the way over. And so looking at that chart, you wouldn't be moved to say, oh, there are two distinct categories here. It doesn't look like a split. It looks like free variation. It looks like a lot of difference. So you could say that observers who look at these accents from the outside try to tidy that up into categories of particular splits. Uh, but And I do think part of that shotgun thing comes from the consonant that follows. Yeah. And that to, to a certain uh, degree, some of that shotgunniness is predictable, that this one is going yeah. to be further back because of the consonant that follows. Absolutely. But another thing at work in normal speech is the amount of stress. So uh, I have to go. Do you have to? We're, I'm going to say those differently in my own speech, even though they're the same word, etc. So uh, there are two things that we're talking about here in terms of how trap breaks into two categories. One is a tensing, and the other is uh, a breaking. Uh, and it's described, I think, by J.C. Wells as northern breaking, which is a, a lovely way of putting it. And that is turning the a into a diphthong. We really referred to this earlier when we talked about uh, singing in the rain. A, stand. Uh, you could hear that if you were to say, that is the last time I'm going to do it. I think that if you've heard any New York City speech, you have an intuition that that doesn't make sense, but last could make sense. Uh, and, right. and the thing that's happening there is a shift in the monophthong to make it into a diphthong, really, or even into two separate syllables. Uh, it's often written, actually, phonetically, with a little syllabic break dot in between the two sounds, uh, although you could imagine it being realized as a diphthong as well. Uh, when I hear it, last, last, it sounds more like a diphthong to me. Yeah, now do you think of it as a falling diphthong, or do you think of it as an on-glide uh, I think of it as as a falling diphthong, really. Last. Last. So the, the i starting place is 
the more important place rather than the ah where it ends up. Well, you know, we got into this a little bit. D- didn't we do a thought episode? I seem to recall you and I talking yeah, about... we were talking about thought. Yeah, right? exactly. Uh, which, interestingly, is in the same part of the country. Uh, there's also breaking in thought. There's a diphthongization in the South as well. So in New York City, thought... I'm really moving, if I'm really doing it, from a labialization into an or, into an er. And so I have a bit of a problem in how I might transcribe it, just as I would with this, last, last. If I were to record it and play it back super slow, I think I'd hear that transition happening pretty steadily throughout. So the the salient feature in our transcription of it uh, may be, for me, the off-glide and for you, the on-glide. W- would you say mm-hmm. that you're hearing the on-glide as the most interesting part of it? Well, when I, when I, um, when I think of last, I think of it as being connected with the trap lexical set. Mm-hmm. And the component of that diphthong that is closest to the my expectation of the set is the ending of it the ah Uh, so to me it feels like and this may just be my bias of where i'm coming from that to me it feels like i'm yeah i'm ending on that ah sound Mm. and that if i think of it as something that might have evolved uh from uh, another's you know another sound uh, perhaps an ah uh that that yeah yeah, is that I'm, I'm tensing up the beginning, but I, mm-hmm. I'm aiming for the ah sound. Whereas when I think of thought, I think of it as a centering diphthong that, like uh, more, thought uh, is releasing into that schwa-like uh, mid-central vowel um, that I go from a rounded back vowel or to a, a release of that somehow that sits somewhere in the middle of my mouth. Oh. And I have to say um, that my intuitions about that were probably entirely reversed until I started to talk to you about this and realized that we're, we're both looking at the elephant from opposite sides. Right. That really there's a shift throughout. There's in oh, a very close lip position to some place that we might, if we sliced off the ends of it, realize as like an RP or... Oh. And then uh, relaxing and a lip unrounding or, and here too, man, man, we're really hitting every step along the way. Uh, so, in a way, it ends up being a not very interesting question of transcription, uh, if we understand what's happening that there's a, a breaking. Last, last, I I really think that I'm relaxing past the the regular position of trap there. I'm quickly grabbing my Accents of English book to see how it is that uh, J.C. Wells transcribes it, because I'm thinking that he's transcribing it uh, with an off-glide as a centering diphthong. So let's hmm. see. So starting at a small cap I and heading towards schwa? Uh, No, actually uh, starting as an epsilon with a length mark followed by a schwa. Uh, 
and then also as a lowercase capital I uh, with an advancing diacritic, what? Uh, <laughs> with a length mark followed by a schwa. So uh, here's the sentence that will describe what he's thinking about it. Thus, bad, B-A-D, overlaps not only with non-rhotic baird, but also with beard. So uh, if we think of the words B-A-D, B-A-R-E-D, and B-E-A-R-D, in the way he's thinking about them, they all sound the same. Bad, bad, bad. I can make them sound similar, but I hear a very distinct difference between them. But I do hear in all of them a relaxing towards the center. Bad. But, you know, it's fascinating to, to look at that and to teach it that way, to teach it really as both. And this is one of those instances where uh, listening to recordings can be really, really useful. Uh, uh-huh. And, you know, that I'm thinking about it, I'm trying to think uh, if it's a true on-glide, it should be very brief. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it would be more like I'm saying, biad, biad, sort of like an odd version of biat. Oh, right, uh, biad. biad. Uh, Whereas if the shortest part is biad. the schwa, then we ought yeah. to make that. You should be able to see it fairly easily on a... Uh, Spectrogram. Well, I tell you that, what, sh- let's uh, uh, leave the audience to decide this. I will take, I'm going to now say, bad. I'll say it a few times. Bad. Bad. That was bad. And then I'm going to, right now, add in the slowed down versions, which we won't be able to comment, but the audience will be able to listen to. Here they go now. Bad. I'll say it a few times. Bad. Bad. That was bad. I think what the audience just heard is uh, more length on the initial part. I think they probably heard an initial very tense place moving into an A, spending most of its time there, and then moving off into a schwa. But it's entirely possible that each element smoothly transitions one to the next and that they're all of equal length. Mm. I'd, I'd love to, I'd love to mm. see a contrast between a bad beard. Uh, yeah. Just to see how the timing difference between bad beard is. It probably, just hearing myself doing it, 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 it's probably almost exactly the same. All right, the so... The qualities are different, but the timing is probably very similar. I'm not a native speaker of this accent, but let's imagine that... Um, so, I, I went to the barber, and I got my face shaved, but it was covered. But then, as soon as my face was bad, I could see that I had a bad beard. It's completely different. My face was bad. I wouldn't... My face was bad. My face was bad. And then I saw I had a bad beard. I think they're very different. <laughs> I mean, the challenge there is uh, that you're, you're saying bad beard, you know, that beard is being I'm, more stressed. Right. My, to say my beard was bad, uh, uh, that I did a bad job with my beard. Uh, yeah. My, well, my beard was bad. You know. A more equal I have a student who uh, grew up in New Jersey who is actually an avid listener to this podcast. 
apparently, he doesn't hear enough of me in class. Uh, <laughs> and so uh, he, he must really like you. Uh, so what I'm going to do, actually, uh, why don't we see if we can have an epilogue to this episode? How about that? Okay. And I will do a short interview with him and then maybe do some slowing down of his speech and uh, see if we can get an intuition. Uh, I know that in his normal day-to-day speech, he does not do a very strong version of this. And I suspect that he will object strenuously to the idea that he might do anything close to it. But we'll see if we can capture from somewhat closer to the source what's going on there. Okay, well, we've been, you and I, I'm sure our recording isn't going to be an hour long, but it's getting close, I suspect. Yes. And we still haven't talked about Palm, have we? That is the truth. (laughs) Well, what do you say? We should stretch it to a fourth episode. Why not? We don't have any deadlines here. Yeah. So, uh, Um, yeah, why don't we do uh, another short episode about Palm, and uh, maybe I can add in my interview with my student into that episode. Yes. You know, before we go, I just want to say that we we have been kind of obsessing a little bit about things like RP and General American Mm -hmm. variations, and we haven't really talked about things like... Hiberno English, Irish English, yeah, uh, yeah. you know that uh, that these three lexical sets are are in many versions of Hiberno English all merged together, um, so that we get palm and trap and bath all sort of sounding roughly the same in many of those well, versions. I and I would refer listeners to uh, Raymond Hickey's. Uh, Hiberno English. What on earth is the name of his atlas of Hiberno English? Irish English yeah. Resource. Ah, uh, yes, he has a website. Is, isn't it I E R P? I think that's like right. That? Irish English Resource page. So, when you listen to the samples from around Ireland, and he is he carefully describes it and records it phonetically. But I find it really surprising how much variation. This is another one of those instances of having approached the accent once, I hear what I want to hear. And I heard the further up the coast, the western coast of Ireland, I I heard trap, bath, uh, palm, uh, but really very, very tightly realized ah sounds. Uh, But then also a lot of variation in in some speakers using bath pronunciations and trap pronunciations. So I have to be ready to, to, uh, to contradict what you just said, which is my own assumption as well, that there's a general merger of, Mm. of, of really quite a lot of sounds, including a lot of lot and cloth, together with trap and bath and palm. That the sort of, uh, what I've sort of built in my head as an Irish accent has lot, cloth, uh, trap, bath, really very similar. And I'm not saying that that doesn't occur, but I'm saying that uh, there can be a lot of variation there as well. Uh, sure, of course. Uh, but, uh, you know, sort of when in doubt, throw a type A uh, sound. <laughs> uh, that's, uh, that, uh, that's a quick way about it. 
Yes, yes. Um, and then we, we also didn't get to talk about trap sort of going to that very heightened RP sort of trap and Beth sort of sound. Exactly. And in fact, that's um, a, uh, there's a lovely website on changes in 20th century RP, uh, who, the author of which I'm going to forget now. Uh, uh, Jack Windsor Lewis, isn't it? That's the one. Uh, and he has a little description there where he talks about some film where the RAF, RAF officer says, uh, chips, you chips. That bed chip. <laughs> exactly. And so that's certainly something that not too very long ago in RP was the case, that trap and dress were really uh, merging. Uh, I think that probably Caribbean English is another place where uh, uh, there's probably some variation uh, that we haven't investigated. So if we discover things about that before our next episode, we'll wrap those in. How's about that? Grand, grand. Excellent. Well, thank you for joining us. I guess I'm talking both to you, Eric, and to our audience. And uh, I look forward to next week. Yes. I, you know, and a word on that. I think your life and my life, Ooh, yes. we're, they're, they're very full. And so... Our weekly sessions <laughs> yes. are turning out to be uh, sort of every other week at best. So uh, thank you. Thank you to our audience for your patience. Indeed. For uh, putting up with our our busy, busy lives. We will get a, another episode to you when our lives allow it. And uh, thanks for your patience. Thank you very much. All right. I'll talk to you later. Okay. Take care. Bye. Bye.